starting a new series as our little ones are going out the door. New series called Thriving in the City. I want to talk about strategies for thriving in the city, for blooming in the concrete jungle, and for flourishing in, in, this, in this space, this place that God has given us. And today I want to talk about the importance of inner renewal. You know, there's a growing meditation in our world, a, a growing realization in our world that we need to work on our insides as much or more than we do on our outsides. And everything from, from yoga classes to gurus and, and iPhone apps that show us how to meditate to support groups that help us get to the spiritual root of whatever bad habits we have or hang-ups that we have in recovery groups. And uh, it seems that everybody these days is talking about the importance of inner renewal. But I believe that the heart of inner renewal, the key path to inner renewal, comes through the gospel. In fact, the essence of the gospel is a message about how we can experience inner renewal. And one of my favorite passages in this regard, and in terms of gospel renewal or inner renewal is Luke 18. It's a parable that Jesus told that you might that might be familiar to you. This isn't something you actually witness. This isn't a historical account. This was Jesus telling a story to make a point. It's one of, one of his parables, and it's found in your program there. It's from Luke chapter 18. And it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there, because I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I tell you that this man, that is the tax collector, rather than the other, that is the Pharisee, went home justified before God, because those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is God's word for God's people this morning. I think... To a lot of people, one of the exhausting things about city life is we're surrounded by a bunch of people who are striving to increase their status, and it's kind of hard to keep up. You know, it seems like everyone I talk to, they're either going back to school to get another degree, or they're studying for some tests so they can get a new certification, or they're angling for a promotion or a career change, looking for the next better job. Uh, People are all constantly engaging in some new diet and exercise plan so that they can better themselves or looking to make new friends or move on to a new romance or take up some, some new impressive hobby that, uh, that will focus their attention and help them optimize themselves. It seems like everybody's looking for a status upgrade of one sort or another. And, the most annoying thing about it is they get, get in the way of us as we're looking to upgrade our own status in similar ways. But, but the, the thing that I've noticed as I was thinking about this is even though status itself is deeply cultural, if you don't 
believe that, just think about what you considered high status when you were in high school, for those of you who have weren't in high school, were in high school a long time ago, and you think of what was high status then and what is high status to you now, and probably they're completely different things. It's a deeply cultural thing, but what's universal is that everybody is always looking for an angle to improve their status. Everybody, it seems, is always looking to do something to elevate their status one way or another. And the interesting thing about Jesus' day is, in Jesus' day, people were deeply religious, deeply and profoundly religious. So the highest status individuals weren't the most powerful individuals or the wealthiest individuals. It was the most successfully devout and religious people who everybody looked up to and, and admired. These were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And I mean, the way you could think about it is like, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were like the professional religionists. You know how like today, almost everybody plays a little bit of golf or a little bit of basketball, or a lot, a lot of people play these sports. But there's a select few, just a couple dozen or a couple hundred in the whole country, in the whole world, who can make their living as professional golfers or professional basketball players. Just a few people that, that do it professionally and the rest of us just kind of hack away at it. In Jesus' day, everybody was religious in the sense that they hacked away at religion a little bit, but there were these certain people, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law who were like the LeBron James of religion and of law keeping, and everybody admired these people. They were the high status individuals. And Jesus says this is what they were like. They were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on everybody else. And he tells a story and it gives us a picture of the way they would pray. They pray this prayer and it's he prays this prayer and it's basically about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I give a tenth of all I get and, and fast twice a week. And especially thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. And, and that was a typical prayer. That was a believable prayer and that, that one of these guys might have prayed because they were so proud of their status as highly religious people. I mean, today, if you heard a person pray that way, if that was the way that Sam came up here and prayed, everyone would be like, what a jerk that guy is, right? <laughs> but in his... In, uh, Jesus' day, a prayer like that was performance art. Everyone would say, ooh, ah, you know, like LeBron James just dunked a basketball or something like that. It was because the essence of status then was righteousness. You know, this passage uses that word. Some were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. And again, they were religious, so people who were complying with the law of God, who studied the law of God, who built their life around obeying the law of God, those were the people that everybody really respected then. Now today, we, most people would think they're free of concerns about religious rules and religious obligations. But if you think about it, actually, it's not that we're, we're no longer concerned about righteousness. We've just changed the definition of righteousness. There's just other things that we seek to comply with depending on our values. You know, if you're a student, if you're a dedicated student, you hand in your paper, you hand in your math test, and you hope the teacher will say that your answers are right and not wrong. You know, when, when you apply for a job, 
you hope that you're going to be accepted, or when you, do, when you do your work, you're hoping that when the boss does an evaluation of your work that he's gonna say, you did this right, you did this in an acceptable manner. See, everywhere we go and everything we do, we wanna be judged righteous, we wanna be judged acceptable, socially acceptable, and approved to the people who, who we wanna be in a relationship with. Politicians appeal for votes. They hope that the voters will find them the right person to elect. Everyone picks some standard to meet, even when we're not religious. In fact, the less religious we are, the more we're worried about these external standards, the more desperate we are to find approval in these other areas. But the problem with that is anytime you set a standard, you subject yourself to a judgment of someone else. See, that's, that's the nature of it. You don't grade your own math tests when you're in school. You have to hand that in for someone else to grade. As an employee, you can't evaluate yourself, or if you do, that's not the, the, the evaluation that's relevant. You need to be evaluated by your bosses and by your supervisors and by other people. Because see, what matters is not what we think about ourselves. What matters ultimately is what other people think about us. That's what that's what was, was, was confused about the people Jesus was addressing. They were confident of their own righteousness, and so they looked down on everybody else. They were pretty sure that they had complied with the law perfectly and completely, and so they felt a free pass to look down on, on everybody else. But all of us ultimately are subject to some standard that's outside of us, some standard that's bigger than us. Whether it's a student in school and their teacher, whether it's, it's an employee at work and their boss, uh, whether it's a kid at home with their parents, we all subject ourselves, put ourselves in subjection to the evaluation of other people. That's the universal human condition. And that's why life can be so exhausting sometimes, because we're always wondering, what does my boss think about me? What does my neighbor think about me? What do my parents think about me? What do my teachers think about me? What do my friends or the people I wish were my friends, what do they think about me? But we're all subject to judgment from whoever, who, whoever we're trying to please, whoever standard we're trying to meet. And for some of us, this, that's what results in us being so frantic and being so worried all the time because we have this this consciousness that we're not measuring up to the standard that matters. And there's one other problem with that is, you know what the cheapest way is to increase your status? You know what the easiest way and the most uh, hollow way to increase your status is? It's prejudice. And that's what these guys had fallen into. It says they were confident in their own, their own righteousness, and so they looked down on everybody else. Because if you can find other people to look down on as a way of elevating yourself, that, that means that without actually accomplishing anything or doing anything or, or, or being worth anything, you have elevated yourself simply by pushing someone else down. And so that's why we humans are so, we have this inclination towards prejudice. And, and often the more desperate we are or the more our lives are falling apart, the more what we want to do is to blame someone else for our problems. And that's what you see going on here. The Pharisee stands up and prays about himself and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. And that's 
what gives him hope. That's what gives him confidence as he stands before God. And so in all of our lives, one of the things I've noticed is if you can find someone else to blame for your issues, it makes you feel a little better for a moment or for a day. You know, if you can blame your parents, you can blame your spouse, you can blame your boss or blame your employees, then whatever's bothering you, it's kind of, well, it's kind of, it feels good the way uh, scratching a boil feels good, you know? It feels good the way pulling on a scab feels good. It feels good, but it really makes everything worse, you know? But that's, that's one of the things we, we, tend, we, we, we tend to do. One of the things we're all prone to is finding someone else to blame, finding someone else to push down so that by that we can elevate our own status. And when we do that, you know, that, that's the thing that corrodes society. That's the thing that corrodes families. That's the thing that corrodes the workplace. When everyone's, when everyone's putting a knife in everyone else's back, when everyone's blaming one another, when everyone's angry or bitter at, at one another, that's what makes these, these gatherings of people just unbearable. And so prejudice is sort of the last resort. We've got nothing else to hope for. We just look around and try to find somebody who we can say, I'm better than that person. That's, that's our last-ditch our last effort to elevate our status somehow. And so, so those, those are corrosive ways of doing that. But, but what I want to show you, and those are all external, and that's mostly what most of us do most of the time is we're, we're stuck with these external ways of elevating our status. But Jesus shows us a path to inner renewal, and it's not through the guys who thought they had it all together, not the high-status individuals. It's through the person who had given up. It says the tax collector stood off to the side, and he wouldn't even look up, but he just called out, God have mercy on me the sinner. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that the tax collectors were the most reviled people group in Jesus' day. Remember, in Jesus' day, the nation of Israel was not a free nation. They were subject to the Roman Empire, and so even though they, they had a lot of freedom to do most of the things they wanted to do, they could worship their own God, they even had their own pseudo-king and things like that, their own laws and their own courts, and and, and had a lot of freedom. The one thing they had to do was pay taxes. But in order to collect the taxes, the Romans didn't send in their own people to collect them. They hired locals. They hired people who knew what was going on. They hired the tax collectors. And that was a lucrative job. It was a secure job because if you were a tax collector, you were protected by the whole, uh, the whole Roman Empire, and you were able to do your job, and you made more money than anybody, anybody else made. The only thing was your family would disown you, you'd be considered an outcast by the synagogue, and, and you'd be considered apostate by all the religious leaders. So in this very religious society, in this very family-oriented society, you were completely cast out. So this guy, this tax collector, dares for some reason to come to the temple realizing what he's done, realizing he sacrificed his integrity, he's been a traitor to his people, he's been disowned by his family, and he calls out, hoping somehow, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Somehow he believes there might be some way that he can be restored. Now, the thing was, 
you know, he wasn't just out in the woods calling out for the mercy of God. He went to the temple. If you're familiar with the story, with the teachings of Scripture, the temple was a complicated place. It was, it was the biggest, most impressive building in all of Jerusalem. When David built the temple a thousand years before Jesus, it was actually one of the most impressive buildings that had ever been built, the original temple of David. This one was, was a... a uh, a rebuilt version of that, so it wasn't quite as impressive, but still it was a big complicated place with all these rituals, with all these scripts that people had to, to, to serve. It was served by a, a group of priests that comprised one-twelfth of the population of Israel. Remember, the nation of Israel was divided into 12 tribes. One of the tribes was the tribe of Levi, and so one-twelfth of the nation was dedicated to the priesthood. Imagine what our city would be like if one out of every 12 people was in the ministry. It would be, it'd be too much. It would be way, way too much. But that's, that's the way Israel was. But all of this stuff and all of the sacrifices and all of the ceremonies and all of the liturgies and all of the rules were, were there to show people the path to experiencing the mercy of God. And so this guy, who was really an outcast, was really had been excommunicated by virtue of his profession, dares to go to the temple and approach the temple and call out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. So he's looking there, he's believing that somehow God is going to be merciful to him. And Jesus says he's the one who experiences God's justification. He's the one who's actually accepted by God. He's the one who's actually embraced by God. So Jesus holds him up as the one who's the example of inner renewal because rather than being focused on his outside, rather than being focused on how he looked or how he comes across, he's focused completely on his connection with God, his relationship with God. See, Inner renewal begins when we realize that what we really need is not something we can earn or achieve or accomplish or deserve. It's something that has to be done for us. It's not something that we can win. It's a gift that we have to receive. It's not based on us satisfying the demands of God. It's based on us receiving the grace of God. And we need to be humble enough to recognize that what we really need is God's grace and our mercy. One prayer God never denies is when we call out to him like the tax collector did, God have mercy on me, the sinner. And when that becomes the thing that redefines your status, then all of a sudden, you know, you still have tests that you got to take. You still have bosses who want to do evaluations. You still have friends that you might have issues with today or tomorrow. And you still have family problems and all those other things. But all of a sudden, those become manageable because in the ups and downs of passing tests and failing tests and good, good evaluations and bad evaluations and getting hired and getting fired and all those other things, we recognize ultimately and essentially my status is defined by the fact that I'm a recipient of the mercy of God. So like I said, the temple was this big, complex institution designed to distribute and, and pass on the mercy of God to the people of God. That's what the whole nation of Israel was all about. But then Jesus came along. You know what Jesus said? He said, from now on, I am the temple. 
and I'll make a dare with you guys. Destroy this temple, and in three days, it'll be rebuilt. And everyone's like, what is he talking about? And then Jesus shows up in another place, and John the Baptist sees him and says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying Jesus is the sacrifice of sacrifices that all the other sacrifices pointed to. We can't win God's favor, we can't buy God's favor, but Jesus came to provide God's favor. And the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the great high priest who always stands in the presence of God on our behalf, interceding for us. And he gives us the access to God that all of us need. So the mercy of God is found through the priesthood of Jesus, through the temple of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's where we find the status we are looking for. That's why Jesus... At the end of his life, one of his last messages to his disciples, he sat down at the Last Supper and he, he said, take this cup and drink from it. It represents the blood of the covenant poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying the mercy of God is available to you, but it's not a cheap mercy, it's an expensive mercy because it was purchased by my blood. It was purchased by my sacrifice for you. And so the challenge for you challenge for me is to really believe first and foremost that our status isn't defined by our job title or our bank balance or our social life or the the school that we go to or the school we have a degree from the the status that defines us the status that matters is the status that we are given because we're recipients of the mercy of god we're debtors to mercy alone and everything else becomes secondary everything else becomes becomes marginal, and that's at the center. You know, our biggest reflex when we're frustrated with our status, like I mentioned, is to condemn someone else, to blame my boss for my problems at work, to blame my parents for my, my mental health problems, to blame, to blame people of a different race, to blame a different political party or whatever it is. We're, we all are, have a reflex to find someone else to blame so we can feel a little better. But you know what? Jesus came and he said, you all are a mess, but stop blaming each other for it and you can put the blame on me. That's what the gospel is. And when we find ourselves with this reflex to try to elevate ourselves by looking down on someone else, try to justify ourselves by condemning someone else, it should remind us that the gospel is that Jesus was punished so that we could be set free. Jesus suffered so that we could be made whole. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for you and for me so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our status as those who are righteous comes from him. Now, for those of you who study the Bible, let me give you a little trick. This, this, this will help you in your understanding of the, the teaching of Jesus. If you want to understand the, the parables, sometimes they seem kind of like riddles, and you're like, where is he really going with this? What is this supposed to say? But one of the principles of understanding a parable is that the last line is always the most important. And so the meaning of a parable is always found in the punchline. So one preacher called it the sting in the tail. And so look at what Jesus says here. He says, 
says to the people he's telling the story to, he says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went home justified before God, not the Pharisee. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The ultimate status is to be justified before God. That, in fact, if you understand the gospel, it means that that is really the only status that ultimately matters. And it went to the one who crawled into the temple, who couldn't look up, who stayed in the shadows, and called out for the mercy of God. Because God will never say no to anyone who prays. God have mercy on me, the sinner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great mercy for sinners. And I pray that you would help all of us as we struggle with our status, as we fight for our status, as we feel dejected as our status is taken away from us. Help all of us to find in Jesus and in his grace and in his love the ultimate status, the security, and the hope that we need. Make that real to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.